as I shared with our kids this morning, I was an only child and didn't have the experience of growing up with siblings in the home. And so I'm constantly amazed about what it's like to have multiple children in my family. And sometimes it's wonderful, and sometimes it's a challenge, and sometimes it's just surprising. So I had a, a surprising thing this weekend. Uh, Jonathan and Zoe and Asher and I were on the road from our house to the Bowman's Club, which is uh, right outside of Merrill. And it's about a 20-minute drive. And I'm a horrible navigator, so everywhere I go, I have Google Maps or uh, Apple Maps on. And, you know, it shows up on the dash of my car there so the kids can see the map and the directions. And we're going through these roads that are kind of unpaved and back roads. And my kids, I think in an attempt to be helpful, started to re-narrate all of the directions for me as we drove. And, you know, the computer does this already, but they thought, well, Dad probably needs to hear it again. And so they would say, oh, Dad, in 1.8 miles, we're going to turn right. Hey, Dad, in 1.6 miles, we're going to turn right. Hey, Dad, in 1.4 miles, we're going to turn right. Really helpful stuff. <laughs> and, you know, as you get, uh, as you're going slower on some of those roads, it tells you by the number of feet, so in 800 feet, in 600 feet, etc. And so Asher and Zoe in the back seat were sort of working in a chorus form to repeat those directions really helpfully for me as we drove. Uh, and then I realized it became a game for them, and they were trying to say the directions before the computer. So, 800 feet, 600 feet, 400 feet. Uh, and then uh, we made a turn, and my daughter, with this great voice of triumph and victory, said, ha ha, I won. And I was like, what did you win? You won the game of narrating the directions in the car fastest. Uh, and I, just it struck me that the capacity for siblings to compete with one another is really limitless, right? There is no end to which siblings cannot find opportunities for competition. I'm still waiting for the alternative. I'm waiting for that day where um, one of my kids is in line and sees their brother behind them and says, oh, you please go first, right? That's going to happen before I die. Maybe we'll see. This theme of sibling rivalry uh, runs throughout the Bible, and we've seen it a bunch of times already. We've seen it uh, in the stories of Cain and Abel. We saw it in the stories of Noah's sons, Ham and Shem and Japheth. And we saw it a little bit with Isaac and Ishmael, the children of Abraham. Uh, and and I, I think as we read the Bible, we're supposed to recognize, somebody once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. We're supposed to notice these rhyming moments where there is a story that is triggering another story we've already read. The authors of Scripture are so intentional about this. They want you, when you see this story of two brothers fighting, to remember all those other stories and call them to mind. Uh, and, and so, as we um, just begin in this conversation about Jacob and Esau, we'll be talking about them for a few weeks. Uh, I want to set up the, the problem. We're not going to solve it today, but I want to set up the problem and the ways this problem rhymes with the story of Scripture. And then we're going to have uh, a different conversation about how things might have gone better in the kingdom of God. So, um, the problem obviously here um, is around this competition for the blessing of Isaac. Uh, and 
I think immediately evident is that there are no good guys in this story. There, there are no good guys in the story. Isaac, not a great guy, and we talked about that last week. Rebecca, um, probably the most defensible character in this story, but still is perpetrating a fraud, clearly. And then Esau sounds kind of like the good guy until the end of the story when he decides he's going to murder his brother. Uh, and when he decides he's going to murder his brother, he calls to mind a very specific person that we've read about already, and that is Cain. Right, he reminds us of Cain. Cain, who was supposed to be the seed of the woman. Remember what we said in the very beginning of our series in Genesis? I said Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the most important verse in the entire Old Testament. It's when God is speaking to the serpent, and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed and her seed, he will strike your head, you will strike his heel. And we said, oh, hey, when Adam and Eve have a child, their first child is Cain, he's the seed of the woman, he's going to be the one to crush the serpent. But it turns out Cain ends up being a seed of the serpent, right? He, he changes teams uh, and murders his brother. And so Esau Wow, Esau reminds us immediately, uh, at least by the end of the story, immediately we think of, oh, this is like the seed of the serpent guy. But Jacob is even more problematic. Uh, obviously, in this story, Jacob is a villain. Obviously, in this story, Jacob is lying to his father and stealing from his brother. He also um, took God's name in vain. You notice that? He said, oh, Yahweh your God gave me success. That's how I got the food so fast. So he brings God into his deception. Um, but even before we get to the story of Jacob, he's supposed to remind us of somebody else. So Jacob's name, um, the, there are only four letters in his name. The first letter is a yod, and it's like a tiny little line. It looks like an apostrophe, okay? It's the smallest letter in Hebrew. The rest of his name, three letters, spells heel. It's the Hebrew word for heel. So when you put that little apostrophe-looking thing in front of the word heel, it means he heals, right? Or he chases after the heel, or in this case, he grabs the heel. We've only heard the word heel one time in the Bible so far. You just heard it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You will strike his head, and he will strike your heel. Who's striking the heel in Genesis 3.15? Well, it's the serpent. So, Jacob is immediately identified not as the seed of the serpent. He's identified as the serpent. The serpent strikes the heel, and what does Jacob do? He strikes the heel of his brother, literally and figuratively. Ooh, ooh, fun fact. Um, raise your hand if your name is Jim or James. Okay, there's a lot of you. Come on. Be, they're, they're in the back. They're hiding. Okay, if your name is Jim or James, your real name is Jacob. So, James is the English version of the Greek version uh, in the New Testament, but James and John were not called James. They were called Jacob, right? It's just a transliteration. So, um, I'm a heel grabber, right? That's who I am. I'm a, I'm a grabber of heels. By the way, if you didn't get the connection between Jacob and the serpent… Isaac says to Jacob when he comes to him with the food, mazot, same thing God said to the serpent, what is this? 
Ah, and I like this as well. Um, what's the last thing Jacob does to his father before he gets the blessing? He kisses him. Ah, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So, in this story, the question is, who do we root for? Who do we root for? When Cain, Esau, and the serpent, Jacob, are the main, story, main characters, and how can this be the family through which all the earth's families will be blessed if there is no seed of the woman in it, right? if there's just the seed of the snake? And, and on a practical level, how can all the nations of the earth be blessed through this family if the next generation murders each other? This is the question we're not going to answer today. We're going to work on over the next few weeks. Um, but I'll give you a hint. Who could take a family like this and bring blessing to the nations? Who could take the seed of the serpent and turn them into the seed of the woman? Who can bring life to a barren womb? That's God, right? Only God can fix this. So, we're going to think about that for the coming weeks, but, but I want to do something a little different this morning. I want to imagine if God had been able to fix this before it happened, how this story might have gone differently. If, if Christ was in this story, if He was one of these brothers, what might have happened differently? Could this broken blessing, uh, a blessing that, that breaks this family in half, somehow be translated into a holy blessing that unites them? And I think there are, um, really quickly, three huge things that might have gone differently if Jacob or Esau were living within the kingdom of God mentality that Christ calls us to. Uh, the, the first thing that I notice is that Jacob and Esau have, as many of us have and many siblings have, sort of a zero-sum win-loss mentality in their relationship. Uh, Duke won the ACC tournament last night, just FYI, uh, and as I was cheering for them, I was not hoping for a tie. I did not want the other team to win. I wanted us to win, and I wanted them to lose. And that's fine in sports, but in life that mentality becomes problematic. There's a wonderful book called The Blessing um, by, I think it's Gary Smalley and John Trent, and it details a lot of stories about this and other blessings in Scripture. And in it, they tell a story about a woman named Cheryl. They said that when Cheryl was growing up, there was a plaque that hung in the family room. The plaque had belonged to Cheryl's grandfather and had become kind of an unspoken family motto. It was not impressive looking. It was... Um, two hand-painted words, and it said, stand up. Just two words, but those two words wrote volumes of hurt into generations of Cheryl's family. The words had originally been part of a longer sentence, a motto that went something like this, don't take anything off anyone, stand up and fight. This might have been a helpful frontier slogan, but it did nothing but damage the personal relationships in Cheryl's family. Cheryl's father had been infected with the never-give-an-inch attitude of his dad. I'm sorry, or you're right, were not in the vocabulary of someone who based his words, his life on the words, stand up and fight. Also absent were any other words that were not useful in a fight, words like, I love you, or will you forgive me, or you're important to me. 
while following this never-give-an-inch family rule helped him become successful in business, it pushed him into a corner with his wife and children. Cheryl's mother and father fought constantly, each an expert on the other's faults, neither willing to give an inch in an argument. When each of Cheryl's four brothers grew up old enough to dislike taking orders from their father, they joined the battle too. Soon there were seven people under the same roof following the family rule of stand up and fight, and its corollary principles, fight for my rights, and death before saying I'm sorry. This situation persisted until Cheryl became a Christian. Cheryl went away to a youth conference and trusted Christ as her Lord and Savior. The first thing she noticed when she came back home was that plaque, stand up. She thought about how Jesus had laid down His life and how tired she was of following this family rule. Little by little and at the painful cost of constant ridicule from her brothers and sisters, Cheryl began to break the family rules. Right in the middle of a fight, for example, Cheryl would say, I'm sorry, you're right, can you forgive me? And end the argument. She even began saying, love you, Mom, love you, Dad, and giving her parents a hug as she left for school. Cheryl's father had never gotten the blessing from his parents, only a plaque that almost destroyed his marriage and family. But over the next two years, he received a blessing from Cheryl. Family rules die hard, but they can be broken. Cheryl's younger sister was so taken with Cheryl's changed life that she also trusted Christ. Soon Cheryl's older brother followed, and the plaque on the wall was beginning to shake. Then last Christmas, as a baby Christian, her father took down the plaque. See, the, the world tells us that blessing is a zero-sum game. If you get it, I don't. But Jesus tells us that my brother's blessing is my blessing. This is the story of the parable of the workers, right, who Jesus uh, says there's an owner, He calls them in to work in His vineyard, He pays them what He's going to pay them, and then He pays the guys who work the least first, and He pays them the same amount He pays the guys who work the longest. And He says, aren't you going to be excited? Aren't you excited that I'm blessing your brothers? And they say, no, I would be excited about their blessing. Jesus says, in my kingdom, we're excited. In my kingdom, I give up privilege for the sake of exalting another. In my kingdom, I am blessed when you are blessed. First piece of that movement from the, from the broken blessing to a holy one is a recognition uh, that blessing is in a zero-sum game. I am blessed when you are blessed. The second piece is we have to overcome what theologians call a scarcity mentality. Scarcity mentality just means um, there's not enough. This is the heartbreaking cry of Esau, right? Is it just one blessing to you, Father? Bless me also. Everybody in this story thinks there's not enough blessing to go around. Rebecca and Jacob think there's only one blessing because it's got to get stolen. Isaac thinks he can't bless his son Esau. He already gave one blessing away. Esau is desperate for recognition and approval and love from his father. And there's this idea there's just not enough to go around. John Milton, in his excellent 
epic poem, Paradise Lost, which is the story of the fall of Satan from heaven to hell, and then ultimately the fall of Adam and Eve from paradise to being kicked out of Eden, uh, has to wrestle with the, the most challenging question maybe for any theological mind, why did Satan fall? Why did Satan fall? I mean, Satan's in heaven. He's with God. Why would Satan ever want to be anywhere else doing anything else? John Milton's answer is this. He says, quote, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. In a nutshell, he says, it's not that heaven wasn't good, it's that Satan wanted more. And this is unbelievably important for us to recognize in our lives. You will never get enough by trying to get more. In no area of your life, you will never get enough by trying to get more. You will never be enough by trying to be more. You either have enough now or you'll never find it. You either are enough now or you won't ever make yourself more. Jesus has a different mentality. He has an enough mentality. Jesus says, oh, there's 5,000 people. What do we got? Five loaves of bread, a couple of fish. This is great. Let's have dinner. Jesus says, oh, you know what? There's one thing that you still need to do in your life. Give away everything that you have to the poor then you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and more life than you had before. He literally says, abundant life. Jesus says, enough isn't something that you achieve. Enough is something you accept as the gift of God. And if you have Christ in you, you have enough. You are enough. You have not scarcity, but abundance. And if you don't, then nothing else will ever be enough. To move from a broken blessing to a holy one, we have to recognize the only enough we need is the abundant life of God in Christ Jesus. And then last but not least, this whole story is a story about the quest for human blessing. And this is a really important part of our lives. It's an important part of Jacob and Esau's life. Uh, it, it actually matters whether people in our lives bless us and love us and care for us. And there is incredible power in it. But however blessed you've been by the people in your life, however much you try to bless others, human blessing has its limits. And for those who did not have the experience of receiving a blessing from another person, we need another source. And this is where Paul's message to the Ephesians comes in in such a powerful way. Paul says that we're blessed by a different Father, from whom every family and in heaven and on earth takes its name, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant that we be strengthened in our inner being with power through His Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith as we were being rooted and grounded in love. He prays that we'll have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length 
and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says you can't even come close to understanding the depth of God's love for you, much less the height and length and breadth. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit living in you to even begin to open your mind and understand how much you are loved. And when you accept that blessing, no earthly accolade or insult can define you. See, the best blessings come from the best Father. I read an article recently about uh, Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a not our form of Presbyterian, but a Presbyterian pastor and writer and um, church planner in New York City. Really, an amazing um, man that I've learned a lot from. And uh, this particular article was chastising him for being too winsome, missional, and gospel-centered. Uh, they said that the world had changed, and because the world had changed, his motto of of sort of gospel-centered living didn't work anymore. Uh, and as an evidence of that, of the more negative world in which we lived, and they pointed out to a, a snub that happened to Keller. So Keller was, in 2017, given the Kuiper Prize for Excellence in Reformed Theology and Public Witness from Princeton Theological Seminary, and asked to come and speak there at a conference. And then there was a lot of conflict and they took the prize away from him. And this author argued um, that this was uh, endemic of the negativity of our world. And I thought, uh, and uh, uh, David French wrote this as well, I thought, imagine trying to explain this to the Apostle Paul. Hey, Paul, the world's really hard right now. Listen to this story. Paul, there was a, a famous and influential Christian pastor Paul's like, whoa, what are you talking about? Christian pastors are killed for their faith. What does a famous, influential Christian pastor mean? Yeah, yeah, hold on, Paul. I haven't gotten to the story yet. Um, they gave this guy a prize, like a big, important award for being a great pastor. There are awards for being good pastors? What are you talking about, Paul says. Yeah, yeah, that's not the important part either. Paul, they took the award away. Isn't that awful? They took it away. And I imagine Paul and Keller and generations of Christians saying, what are you talking about? Who cares about the accolades of men? Who cares about the awards uh, and the insults that we can be given by humans? What blessings matter to me are those that are eternally significant? The insults that I remember and dwell on, they're not going to be around in 10, 15, 20 years. The blessings that I seek out so desperately may matter to me for a week or a month or a year, but there are blessings that will matter to you in a hundred years. There are blessings that will matter to you in a thousand years. When you are still alive in God's kingdom, those blessings, the best blessings, come from the best Father. Seek those out first, Jesus says, and everything else will be added unto you. This process of of moving from a broken blessing to a holy one means I have to recognize I am blessed when you are blessed. It means I have to recognize that what I need is the abundant life that Christ offers and not this idea there's not enough for me. And it means that I have to go to God the Father and say, you are the one who's going to give meaning and purpose and joy and love in my life. 
And if we do that, if we let God do the blessing first in our lives, um, then we get to be a different kind of story. We get to be a story of those who model a different kind of life and a different kind of family. And boy, there is something exciting about the family of God when we live like Christ calls us to live, that other people want to be a part of. And people say, hey, I want to be in a family like that. So let's seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Thanks be to Him. Amen.